Carmen Schober with the No Apologies podcast. I am here today with a special guest to talk about a subject that I'm really excited about. I don't know a lot about it, but it's something that I've wanted to learn a lot about. So it's pretty cool that this person is joining us today. His name is Roger Tyndall, and he is the executive director of the Winthrop House in New Hampshire, which is a fairly new kind of budding intentional Christian community in Eastern New Hampshire. Did I get all that right, Roger? You did. Yes, Perfect. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming on No Apologies. Well, and thanks so much for having me. You know, it's a topic that I too, obviously, am very interested in. And um, it's something that's gaining more traction. And I'm happy to talk about it to, to spread the word. Yeah, I think our listeners are going to be very into this episode. We've got a lot of people in different stages of researching this and thinking about this. So just to get started, maybe give our audience just a sense of who you are and your background so we can kind of learn how you ended up doing what you're doing. Sure. So, you know, my story isn't hugely exciting, but I think to understand what we're doing, I'll I'll give you sort of a rundown. I was raised in Sacramento, California. So raised in a a very blue city in a very blue state um, and obviously in an urban environment. And I uh, was raised in a secular house, so I wasn't raised Christian. And in my teen years, I got uh, very interested in conservative thought, conservative politics, philosophy, that sort of thing. And through that I uh, became Christian first as a a fundamentalist Protestant and then later, a little bit later as a Roman Catholic. And I've been following trends in conservative thought and politics ever since. So I was, uh, you know, a lot of my friends here in Sacramento went to, you know, UC Berkeley or UCLA, um, but I decided instead to go to a very small Catholic liberal arts school in California called Thomas Aquinas College which is a great book school. And in so doing, I became kind of plugged into traditionalist Catholic world, which I was a complete outsider to, but met many many wonderful people and learned a lot uh, in that experience. And I've sort of, that's sort of been my scene ever since. So subsequent to that, rather than going to grad school, uh, my wife and I have been pursuing this concept in various forms since 2013 or so. Okay. Uh, and we ended up moving to New England to stay on uh, or to live on her grandfather's farm for a number of years, uh, trying to get this started there. And then after that, uh, moved to a property owned by a, a wealthy friend in New Hampshire. So that's where we are currently. Wow. Okay. That's a really interesting turn of events. So when were you like converted to the faith? You said you grew up in a secular household. About what time in your life did you realize you wanted to be a Christian? Well, again, it was it started with an interest in conservative politics and philosophy, and that because before I started exploring that, I was a, I'd say it's a very uh, kind of adamant atheist actually, ah. um, though a temperamentally fairly conservative one. And it wasn't until I started reading, you know, people like if your listeners are familiar with say like Russell Kirk and some other uh, conservative thinkers that I was at least open to the idea of faith. And then I, I can't say there was a, uh, you know, road to Damascus moment, but more of a gradual intellectual engagement with the faith that eventually led to conversion by the time I was uh, around 17. 
Okay. Wow. And I'm just curious, how old are you now? You said you've been working on this concept for about seven years. Yes, actively for seven years. Uh, so I'm 29 now. Okay. Okay. Wow. I'm 28. So and I think okay. our average audience, we range between 18 and 45 with probably okay. the, the median being 30. So people write about where we are. Yeah, for sure. And that's great because, you know, I can drop references that uh, you yes. know, won't be drawn away from here. And so I'm sure you remember, you know, like Ron Paul when we were in oh, high yeah. school. Yep. I think a lot of guys my age were really into that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was sort of a starting point for me and which I outgrew eventually as I think a lot of us did. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Um, so, you know, you should have been actively working on this for seven years. And mm-hmm. so you, you started it in one location, sort of a farm Correct. that you inherited. And what made you ultimately make the switch to a new location after kind of spending time on that one? Well, the farm was owned by my wife's grandfather and he eventually passed away and the property was divided. Okay. And so we, because we were taking care of him, we left after he died and then the property was subsequently sold. I see. I imagine though that experience was very helpful in learning how to farm because I assume you and your wife probably didn't have that experience before. Not at all. I should say that the farm was not really being farmed at the time. Okay. Though it had in the past. It it used to be a horse farm, and then by the time we arrived, you know, most of the horses were gone. It wasn't really being used for much. But yeah, it was pretty. I have to say, a couple city kids, you know, bright and starry-eyed, with all these ideal, like back to the land type ideals. It was pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> I can only first, first attempts at homesteading. Yeah, um, definitely not a little house on the prairie. But, you know, we raised pigs, we raised turkeys, geese, chickens, and we slaughtered them. And, you know, we had gardens and that sort of thing. Made a lot of mistakes along the way. But we had we had a couple of friends live with us through that. So there were five of us all together to start. Very cool. I believe you mentioned a little bit before we uh, started here that a lot of your listeners are coming to this idea of intentional community through things like homesteading. And so we're, we're kind of similar to that in a lot of ways. Like that, that was part of what inspired us to really pursue this actively and, and not just as an intellectual concept. Um, so, you know, we were subscribed to Mother Earth News. We, you know, went to uh, small farms and connected with people that way. We volunteered at organic farms to learn how to do things. Uh, and so our original, you know, I guess the, the earliest version of our vision here was more kind of like a classic like go back you know back to the land sort of thing yeah that's really cool so it's, it's good to hear that people are coming to this concept through that yeah i think the sustainability sort of the i don't want to say like simplicity because i don't think that living off the land is super simple <laughs> but no. um maybe more natural you know less sure. sort of like artificial food artificial ways of spending your time is a very kind of natural way of living, interacting with the earth, interacting with other people. I think that's very appealing, especially Mm. the longer, you know, postmodernism stretches on and makes things uglier and makes things more crowded. And, you know, I think it's just an appealing idea to a lot of people. But like you've mentioned, there's a whole kind of Christian movement within it, particularly in Catholic thought and Catholic circles. We talked about it before we started. There's not really, as far as I know, aside from Doug Wilson's community in Idaho, you don't really see this happening very much Mm -hmm. in Protestantism. 
why should Christians consider this a worthy endeavor, as so many people clearly are kind of starting to? We, there's obviously different pieces to it, the homesteading mm-hmm. piece and different things, but kind of just from your perspective, what's really compelling you to do this, and why do you think other people should feel compelled to do it too? Well, let's start with where we were just talking, because um, you know, that's one angle is through the concern for you know, nature, more natural ways of living, beauty, maybe not, as you said, a simpler way of life, but maybe a more natural way of life. Um, A book that was very influential to me in my teens was a book called Crunchy Cons, as in Crunchy Conservatives. And that book was also by Rod Dreher, who we might talk about later, but he, um, at that point, this was at the, I think, Bush's second term, so later 2000s, and he was then a writer at National Review, um, you know, of fairly conventional conservative in a lot of ways, but in then some other ways, very different from his colleagues. You know, he talks about going to like a natural foods co-op and doing, you know, crunchy things that are usually associated with the left. And so what the book Crunchy Cons was about was trying to discern why these kinds of impulses are in fact conservative, they're legitimately conservative, and then exploring subcultures of people like this that are very crunchy in a lot of ways, but also very conservative. So that brings up a whole discussion about you know, you know, the good life and um, you know, a stewardship in a Christian sense. And there is in fact actually quite a large subculture of Christians who are very crunchy. Um, Mother Earth News is sort of the premier magazine for homesteading in this country. And it once did a a survey of its readership, and surprisingly, about half identified as, as conservative, libertarian, or Christian, wow. um, and not leftist at all, uh, which is part of why they have a very neutral editorial stance when it comes to politics, because about half their leadership identifies as conservative. So this is not a, a niche thing by any means, and I think a lot of Christians and traditionally-minded people have come to this sort of thinking independently. So. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's a very healthy impulse there that should be um, more self-conscious, I think, and more discussed in Christian circles. Uh, and so there is that angle. There's the sort of uh, looking for a healthier way of life than what uh, modernity or, or modern capitalist society provides. Uh, and that's certainly, um, that's certainly a legitimate angle. Um, the, yeah. other, the other two, though, I would say is... Uh, to bring Rod Dreher up again, his latest book is um, called Live Not By Lies. And in that book, he talks about this growing soft, what he calls a soft totalitarianism on the part of not just the government, um, but uh, you know, corporate America, education, the media, that is now very self-conscious, very, um, very uh, deliberately trying to stifle uh, Christian ways of thinking, Christian values, conservative values. And um, he promotes intentional community as a way to is the most effective way we have now to resist that trend so and that's that's something i certainly agree with this is something he talks about in his other writings and then i'd say the third angle to approach this with is um concern that our current system isn't as sustainable as it seems um isn't as uh uh, how do you say isn't as permanent maybe as it seems to us now yeah, um, that more it's fragile. For it's sure, yeah. Letting on. Absolutely, and so there's a sort of the you brought up fragile. It's sort of the anti-fragility angle of how do we become more resilient in the event, uh, as COVID showed us, that uh, the system maybe starts to fail in certain areas. 
Um, so I think all three of those issues, the, um, the there's the you know, looking for a better way of life. There's the trying to fight back against a stifling governmental and cultural uh, advance of progressivism, and then uh, trying to become more resilient. All three of those angles, I think, are very important for Christians. Nice. That's a very good summary. I think that sounds, that kind of hits the nail on the head as far as the different motivations I've heard of people being drawn into this concept. Maybe just we should do a quick big picture description mm -hmm. of what does a intentional Christian community entail? You know, some people might have some idea, um, but others listening might have like none <laughs> whatsoever. Right. So kind of what what's just the basic building blocks that Dreyer kind of lays out that people should be starting with. So this is a big conversation um, in Catholic world in particular, but it, across the you know, Christian world and, and among conservatives. And there's a lot of different answers. And frankly, uh, having followed it closely for a while, there aren't really a lot of hard, fast answers out there. And it, we're really in a situation now where we're, everybody's trying to figure this out. So um, intentional community could mean a lot of things. And there are a lot of different approaches. And uh, a lot of these approaches are pretty rough draft right now, I have to be honest. And uh, Rod Dreher, I would, I'll plug his, his main book now, um, which is called The Benedict Option. And anybody who's interested in this concept should get that book just because this was the book that brought this, this topic um, into the fore for in the Christian circles and made a lot of people think about it in a way they hadn't before. And in that book, what he advocates, what, what he talks about is the fact that we've kind of lost the culture war is his bold, his bold assertion that a lot of people really um, uh, objected to, but I think he's right that we've lost the culture war as a conventional battle, you know, um, the you know, politics, evangelization, focus on the family, all these sorts of ways that we've been fighting the culture war are, are failing and they're just continuing to fail. And so what he was arguing is that intentional community is the best way uh, to resist in this new environment where we're increasingly becoming a marginal minority. Um, and it looks like that's just going to continue to, to be the trend. So that way, a lot of the book, um, unlike or quite like a lot of other books of, of, on this topic, is mostly analysis. It's mostly um, defending you know, the, his approach, talking about problems, and then it's fairly light on actual application. But what he does say, he emphasizes things um, that are very basic, like living close to each other, right, is the most basic. Um, just because so many people are, are living lives in their own little bubbles and then maybe get together on a Sunday morning and hang out for a coffee hour afterwards, but otherwise are, are leading totally separate lives. So I, I think his biggest practical um, application is the importance of proximity and that people have to be proximal to really build a common life together outside of Sunday morning or maybe a Wednesday night Bible study or prayer service or something. Very um, cool. But beyond that, uh, you know, I, I got the opportunity to meet Rod in uh, here uh, or in uh, Massachusetts two years ago. Wow. Giving a talk. And uh, I asked him afterwards. So it seems to me, based on what you're saying, that what you're advocating is really a call for a more intense uh, uh church, common church life. Uh, and so I was asking, you know, what is the difference between a call for a more you know, spiritually rigorous church life and the Benedict option? And I think very revealingly, he said, um, I don't know that there is. 
a big difference. And he said, I, I'm just not really, I'm still trying to uh, discern how, uh, you know, how to approach this myself. You know, he, he's very humble guy, very honest, and it admits that, you know, beyond really basic things like living together, praying together more, um, living together, meaning just in the same neighborhood, say, that he doesn't really have a lot of application um, to offer. And, and that's why this is sort of an ongoing conversation. But I would say to answer your question, then maybe in a very roundabout way, the most basic uh, form that this would take is that proximal living, um, just because that's the starting point. You can't really do a whole lot more um, than the average person unless you're living somewhat proximally. It doesn't mean you have to be on a commune or something or living in the same house, but at least so, you know fairly close to each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Start there. And then from there, it would make sense. You could figure out all kinds of different things as far as ways to minister to each other, ways to minister mm -hmm. to other people. But the baseline is intentionally moving to an area near the people you want to build your life with. At least in some of the conversations we've had, intentionally trying to pick a place that will be relatively friendly to mm -hmm. your way of life. You know, like it'd be hard to pick up and do this in like Portland, but For maybe sure. a more rural type setting, you know, less government intervention type thing is a factor. Certainly the way a lot of people are talking now, and obviously you're hearing the same kinds of conversations, is uh, especially in, in wake of what happened this summer and the election, is we need to get out of the blue states. We need to head for like Idaho or maybe the American South. Um, but there are actually examples of uh, people who have done this in environments that you might consider fairly hostile. So uh, there is a community in Hyattsville, Maryland of Catholics who have done this. A, a lot of folks have moved into a, a neighborhood that was fairly uh, run down, bought houses close to each other, uh, revitalized a parish, a, a church, and uh, a school. And um, it's Hyattsville, Maryland is basically a suburb of Washington, D.C. So a blue state, a blue area, uh, you'd think it'd be a fairly hostile environment, but they've made it work. For this, this sort of baseline uh, version of intentional community, just living close together and doing stuff together, um, they've made it work and they've been very successful with that. Uh, the, the fellow who started is a guy named Chris Curry. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's very involved in local politics and the community itself seems to be growing uh, more and more all the time. Wow. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to go out in the middle of nowhere to make something like this work. So yeah. That's well, and that's, that's a cool concept of, you know, maybe rather than a retreat, it's kind of an advance, you know, they're kind of taking back part of sure. the culture. So how does your intentional Christian community look? You know, you mentioned that you had friends who had a property in New Hampshire, and that's where you've relocated. Is it like everyone living in one large space or houses next to each other, or just kind of give people a sense of what that's like? So where we are right now, um, used to actually be an intentional community decades ago. It was like a, a sort of new age commune uh, with oh. 100, 150 people living on it. And so they farmed, they had a furniture, furniture shops, they, they did all kinds of stuff. And it was like a little village within this town in New Hampshire. So it's on a hundred acre parcel. Uh, our friend is a, a deacon in the Catholic church, a, a wealthy gentleman um, who bought this property as sort of a, a project. And he's still not quite sure what he wants to do with it. 
But in any case, we live on one of the buildings on the property, which is an, the oldest. It's an old um, colonial, probably built about 1780. And not a huge house, but large enough that we fit. Um, there's five of us there now, uh, my wife and I, and then three of our friends. Okay. But uh, so that's um, for right now, uh, as the owners figuring out what to do with the rest of the property, that's, that's where we are. And it's a great location. We're about an hour outside of downtown Boston. And uh, so in other words, not in the middle of nowhere. Sure. And we're able to do a little bit of homesteading type, you know, small scale farming and things like that. Uh, and then we have many other friends who live in the general vicinity, maybe within 40 minutes. Okay. Uh, we have the benefit of Thomas More College of the Liberal Arts, which is a very traditional Catholic college about 35 minutes away. So we know a lot of people through that. Um, there's a, a, a press, a publishing house that goes with it that's in about 30 minutes away. And then there's another conservative Catholic college a little bit farther away. Wow. Um, so I would, uh, I'll take that opportunity to uh, you know, offer the first piece of advice to folks, yes, which is if, if you're going to move somewhere, a big consideration should be, is there something in this area that will anchor our community? Because you know, the United States is huge. You could pick just about anywhere on the map to try to make this work. But one consideration should be uh, figuring out what you're about. So figuring out the parameters of what your community is about, you know, what's drawing the, uh, the boundaries. So for example, you know, are you, do you just want like a strictly say conservative Calvinist community or are you more broadly Protestant evangelical or is it strictly Catholic or is it interdenominational or what have you? Uh, and then find in existing institutions that will support that. So you brought up Moscow, Idaho. Um, I would recommend that anybody who has theological uh, conviction similar to Doug Wilson move to that part of Idaho just because you're going to have a school that's attracting people. Uh, you've got institutions that can support a community already existing, and that's going to be um, a lot easier to work with than if you just go out to the middle of nowhere and try to start from scratch. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Plug in to what's already existing, and of course, should you know you decide at some point you want to go somewhere else or you need to go somewhere else, it's obviously not going to hurt that you spent time learning within a community that already exists. Absolutely. And, and then things too, like recruitment, you know, it's, it's hard to recruit people if you're out in the middle of nowhere, but if you're, you know, circulating in, in an existing, if it's not exactly a community, um, shall we say a scene, um, you're going to meet people and get to know them and, and build organic relationships in a way that it's hard to do digitally. Um, so that in the event you do want to move to somewhere more remote, you you have existing relationships to build on, as you pointed out. Yes, yes, that makes sense. And that's something I think that's probably, at least in our audience, a core group of us, you know, know each other and have spent time together as friends living near one another. But the vast majority of people, they only know each other through online interactions. And so right. even though, you know, you can get a fairly good sense of if someone is aligned with you and you have a good sort of connection that way. There are limits to that. And obviously taking a big step of moving near someone who you've never met, <laughs> it's kind of a, kind of a risk no matter for what. Sure. And that's why a lot of these, these conversations, which have been happening for decades, don't really get anywhere because uh, it, it, they tend to be 
uh, I'm, I'm not talking so much about homesteaders or people who are actually out there doing stuff. I'm, I'm thinking more of intellectuals who are thinking about these questions in a more intellectual way is that they talk a lot about it. They publish articles in journals. Um, I'd recommend your readers read Front Porch Republic, an online publication. Um, another one would be Plow Quarterly. These publications talk about these ideas. They have conferences. People get together and talk about the ideas, but nothing ever comes of it just because they only know each other sort of through these intellectual conversations. So we knew a we early on in our project, when we moved out to New England, we met this couple who had a farm in Northern Vermont and they were um, graduates of Eastern. So they were Protestants who had converted to Catholicism and were trying to live out this ideal in Northern Vermont. And they said one of their biggest problems is that nobody um, wants to actually do anything. People like talking about it online, but they don't actually want to you know, have any skin in the game. So they were having a really hard time attracting people to this new community um, and we're kind of stuck by themselves. Uh, sorry to say, wow. uh, but that's pretty common. You know, people, it's a lot easier to talk about it and to fantasize about it than to actually go do it. But certainly step number one is, you know, moving, moving to where people like you are already. Yeah. Now that you are a few years into the process, what mm -hmm. is something you definitely wish you would have known or would have done earlier on? Okay. So there's, yeah, we have learned a lot. Um, we definitely look back on our younger selves or, or early 20s selves as a very naive, but that's okay. Uh, we've, we've learned a lot. And the first thing I would say is when people think about intentional community, the tendency is to have the sort of idea, uh, romantic idea of going back to the land and going back to a simpler way of life like we were discussing. And so the impulse, and I see this time and again, is let's go out to the countryside, buy a piece of property, and we'll farm, and we'll live together and pray, and it'll be awesome. Uh, that's sort of where we started. I would not recommend that. Um, I would not recommend that to most people. Uh, if you have existing uh, skill sets in that area, if you already are a farmer or homesteader, you could maybe make that work. Uh, but generally, this is where intentional communities go to die. And, and it's not just true of Christians, but if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, communities like this were a dime a dozen, and they always failed. And there are a couple reasons for that. Here, here's why I would not recommend doing that. Uh, one, farming will not make you a lot of money. So there's always going to be economic stress if you make that a focus. Uh, it is very hard work. Um, you, don't, you can't really appreciate that until you've actually done it. Uh, so basically, you're doing really hard work for no money. Um, you're out in the middle of nowhere. So that's just hard to make make things work in, in any any way, uh, unless you're used to doing it. Uh, if you're used to a, an urban lifestyle, that transition can be pretty shocking. Uh, you certainly won't enjoy the quality of life you used to enjoy in the city. Um, and then to, so you've got hard work, not a lot of money, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And that tends to lead to boredom and, and infighting, which is very common, especially mm -hmm. if you're trying to start a community from scratch with a bunch of people you barely know. Uh, that is a sure way to make sure that you're going to be at each other's throats in no time. So I definitely would not recommend any of that to, to most people. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, I think that is pretty much as you're, what you're describing. I'm like, oh, that's pretty much what we have gotten to so far. <laughs> okay. okay. So that's so I, good. I think many people will recognize, will recognize this, you know, if you've actually gone out and done it. 
Um, so the, the second thing that kind of goes along with that is definitely don't try to start an intentional community with people that you don't know at all, or at least don't um, like move in together or very, very close proximity. Don't do anything like that with people you don't know at all, because you, you know, people have their quirks and stuff and the, you don't want to have to like go through learning how to live together um, while you're trying to get something started. That can be very tough to do. So I definitely recommend embarking on a more ambitious project with people that you already have some rapport with. And that'll make a big difference once you actually, uh, you know, get started. That makes sense. Yeah. So kind of have, um, so if you're not focusing on farming or, you know, kind of the land, you would say, find industry an alternative kind of industry to center mm -hmm. this community around yes okay. so we stayed with a group and your listeners can look them up called the 12 tribes of israel we spent a lot of time with these people uh, because they're a, a rare example of an intentional community from the 1970s that actually survived um, they are a sort of variety of christianity you know some people say they're a bit of a cult um, but they're wonderful people and they're very good at what they do and so they were smart. They didn't start with farming. They started with industries. So they, uh, you know, whether it's plumbing, carpentry, construction, they ran delis and restaurants, uh, things like that uh, for decades. It really focused on that. And then once they had the uh, capital resources, they then pivoted to farming. So they did mm. farming second. And that's, that's why they, I think part of their success is that they waited to do the farming um, and certainly waited till they had people who knew how to farm to do farming. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, and so what are you envisioning your your community centers around? I know you said you have the college and a printing press. Is it more kind of like education or what's sort of the anchor of the Winthrop House? So in southern New Hampshire, the anchor is the uh, that we're drawing on is the college, uh, the colleges, I should say, and uh, the intellectual sort of um, there's a sort of a congregation of intellectuals in that part of, the, of New Hampshire. And then there's a traditionalist Catholic parish in the area. So for Catholics, at least, there is, there's anchors there that draw people from around the country and we're able to use those networks to grow uh, our own community network. Now, we're not a denominationally conser or a Catholic uh, group. We do have uh, quite a few Eastern Orthodox friends and then some oh, Protestants cool. too. So, uh, yeah, we draw from, you know, many different areas, different church networks. I'm familiar with uh, Moscow, Idaho and Doug Wilson, just because there are sort of outposts of his network here in, or in New England. So we're able to, we have a good relationship with those folks. Um, so, but for us, as we, I, I, we talked earlier about moving together and doing things close together. Um, and if that sort of very basic sense of community is what you're looking for, I recommend Leah Labresco's Building the Benedict Option. So after you've read the Benedict Option, read her book, because they've done something like this in Pittsburgh. Oh. We, um, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would recommend that. Um, but if you want to get more ambitious, which we are, so we are, we're trying to get beyond that basic level of living close together. Um, our focus then is on economics, and I would recommend that anybody who wants to go beyond that basic level take a or really think about this. So, in other words, um, taking your community beyond just like praying together, or going to church together, or something like that. Uh, think about economics, because if you want to, uh, what I call decouple from the system, uh, think uh, think about in terms of like homeschooling. So the homeschool homeschooling movement saw that the uh, that basically the public schools were a lost cause, 
and they decided to create an alternative. And that alternative was a Christian schooling movement and then homeschooling and, and successfully, very successfully decoupled from public schooling. So uh, getting more ambitious is basically doing that for as many areas of your life as you can. Uh, the less plugged in you are to the to a hostile system, the better. So economics, I think, are really crucial just because, you know, you can get together and pray and have great ideas about things. But if you don't have a, the means to make a living, a comfortable living, uh, your community is just not going to last very long. Um, and then, two, our so much of our time is spent in economic life that uh, to decouple from, say, you know, if you're working for a large corporation that's pushing a progressive social agenda, uh, instead of spending 40 plus hours a week kind of making them wealthier and stronger, you're able to decouple and make businesses that sh that are that represent your values get wealthier and stronger. So uh, cr crucial for us here is uh, my wife is a, a CPA, certified public accountant, and she is building a, an accounting firm that will also be a consultancy to help businesses become better at doing business. And so we're able to use that as a sort of keystone economic activity to employ friends, but then also to help other friends get their own businesses started using her expertise to get them to start their own businesses. So what we envision is uh, focusing on this economic aspect and building a network of businesses where we're working for and with each other and using that to, along with church activities to cement our community together. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, it's obviously I'm super new to the process, so it's fairly abstract, but I get what you're saying. Like, if you can get that in place, then obviously the rest will run much smoother because sure. you need the capital to do everything else. Absolutely. So here's another piece of advice I would give yeah. is I think the tendency with things like this is people try to find people who think exactly the way they do. Um, and that's more the focus is like, do we agree on a bunch of stuff? That's great as far as it goes, but I would recommend, and this is based on experience, look for people who, who maybe agree with you, um, you know, a certain amount, but maybe not perfectly agreed, but have a valuable skill set. Uh, because if you have a lot of folks in your community that share the same ideals, you're not, but no skills, you're not going to get very far. You know, um, you know, if you're a community of like school teachers and you just do one thing or, or maybe, uh, you know, professors or something, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to get very far, or at least not beyond like starting a school. But if you get a good mix of skill sets, you can, uh, you know, synergize and create something that's very economically successful and will be able to sustain a common life. So yeah. definitely make sure you have a good mix and not just a bunch of intellectuals. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of intellectuals. Right. Well, and that's been something, you know, I think we've sent out a survey before just kind of getting a sense of people's enthusiasm for this concept, as well as like what they're concerned about. And I do think a lot of the concerns were kind of like, well, what if we don't agree on this? Or what if we don't agree on that? Right. And it seems like that's pretty easy to get you could get, you could just go around forever in that oh, certain yeah. point. You'd have to just say, well, I guess we don't agree about that, but <laughs> how do we have a sustainable community where we're at least agreeing on some uh, majorly important things? For sure. I mean, as you know, there are Christians who agree with each other 95% who are at each other's throats. <laughs> both in right. Uh, I would say, uh, just drop in advice here at random, but the, a personality type you want to stay away from is is the sort of person who is very 
hyper concerned with minutiae. You, you want to be around people who can get along with people who are maybe a bit different from themselves, who are good at working together in groups. You don't want really contentious people uh, coming from a, a very, very, very narrow orthodoxy who are looking to build a community with people who are exactly like them and are, have a tendency to excommunicate people for mm-hmm. small divergences. It's just, it's just not going to work. Um, right. Yeah. You've given lots of great tips and starting points and things to think about. Maybe since you've been in this for a while, I assume you Mm -hmm. probably know, besides, you know, your community, the one you mentioned, there's one in Pittsburgh, there's the Mm -hmm. Moscow, Idaho. Are there any other kind of prominent ones that people can look into and maybe just sort of research as a starting point, just see what's going on there and get a sense of how they could you know, either plug in or brainstorm their own, just kind of what other communities are out there. There, I know there actually is one in Kansas. Now that I think about it, there's a Catholic community in St. Mary's, Kansas. I don't know if you're familiar with them there at is. all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Society of St. Pius, the uh, the 10th has a, a community there. They basically run the town. Um, so if you are a, a, the sort of Catholic who'd be inclined to agree with them theologically, obviously that's going to be the place that, that's sort of their mecca. Oh, and one thing you should probably yep. know, sir, our audience is probably majority Protestant. So right. if you have Protestant communities or ecumenical, like you kind of mentioned, if they were open to Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, you know, those are great. Too. Right. Yeah. So that that's where this gets tough. There really, as far as I know, there isn't really a lot from any persuasion. Um, if if you if you're looking for a model, maybe you aren't Catholic yourself, but you're looking for a model, there is the Clear Creek community in Oklahoma, and they're a, a community that's grown up around a monastery, a very traditional monastery, and a lot of homesteaders there. You know, maybe worth looking into, but obviously you know, very traditionally Catholic, so not a lot. Uh, you know, obviously a, a conservative Protestant you know, couldn't, I don't think, really fit in there, but right. Um, th- I did m- mention uh, Hyattsville, which is, again, mostly Catholic. There is a community in Eagle River, Alaska of Eastern Orthodox that have bought property surrounding a church plant there. Uh, actually, no, I don't think they're a church plant. They've, they've been around now for a while, if I'm remembering correctly. So that's if you're Eastern Orthodox, I definitely look into them. Uh, but there isn't really there's not a lot. I'm, I'm sorry to say. The, uh, there are smaller communities that have come and gone, but uh, again, they, they tend to go as fast as they come around. So uh, there aren't a lot of models out there. Something your listeners might want to look into is the new monasticism movement. That is, uh, sounds Catholic, but it's actually Protestant. And this is a movement of, of lay people who are uh, building intentional communities of sorts that have a very strong spiritual vocation. So almost like a kind of uh, monastery, but with people who are married. Uh, and Shane Claiborne, uh, in his book, Irresistible Revolution, might be something to look at. Uh, but yeah, if you Google new monasticism, there are smaller, very, very spiritually oriented communities of this type. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Here's just a question. This isn't something I sent you ahead of time. I just thought of it. So sorry, it's kind of off the cuff. And then we can kind of end on this because I think this has been really informative and helpful. Um, But my question would be, as we're anticipating, you know, sort of the results of this election, and we've seen just a lot of turmoil in the United States. And like you pointed out, I think a lot of people are sensing that the system is more fragile than many people want to let on. Do you foresee these communities 
potentially building more coalitions with one another, even though they might have these very different kind of theological backgrounds, just for sheer, I guess, almost like a refuge type sake, depending on how things go. Do you think that, you know, sort of these Catholic communities anticipate kind of functioning in that way in the future? Or I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts on that, or if they're more kind of, um, I guess maybe something that sort of, it's not really the same thing, but it, for some reason it strikes me as similar. I don't know if you remember, it came out that like the Mormon church had saved like over a billion dollars to prepare for the end times. I don't know if you mm-hmm. were familiar with that story. And a lot of people like criticized them for that and, you know, said they should use that money for different things. But I also heard very valid arguments of like, I mean, we know that there's going to be turbulent times. So is it really not is it, I mean, it's not a bad idea <laughs> to try to um, prepare for that financially. And, you know, they came out and said, you know, this is for our community, but it's also for the global community. We're going to try to minister in whatever way we can. So I don't, do you, do you think these communities see themselves functioning in a similar way or not so much? I don't know how far ahead the existing communities have thought on this question, but I'm glad you brought it up because it's certainly something we think a lot about. So um, our community has attached to it uh, a uh, 501c3, a nonprofit, which is Winthrop House, properly speaking, is our 501c3. And part of what we're doing with our nonprofit is we're trying to uh, bring as many people together as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people need to be part of the same community. As a matter of fact, we advocate uh, people with different priorities starting different communities. But we do emphasize the importance of coordination because we are very small as a percentage of the population at this point and getting smaller of really you know, committed Christians. And we can't really um, afford an infighting or even just ignoring each other. We can't afford insularity at this point. Right. We can be a lot more resilient by working together. So we're very concerned with building um, you know, uh, uh, networks and uh, cooperative structures between different uh, sort of like little islands. And so you, you, you mentioned again, Moscow, Idaho, a very vigorous, successful movement uh, around Doug Wilson and uh, New St. Andrews College. And I've been working now for some time to get those folks to dialogue with conservative Catholics or traditionalist Catholics, because they have a lot of, a lot in common, despite, you know, big theological differences. And I would love to see um, a very expansive network of such communities actively supporting each other in the event that something goes seriously wrong, which it certainly could. And uh, I'm glad, too, that you brought up the Mormons, because as far as I can tell, they're the ones to beat. Uh, the Mormons, <laughs> far and away, have the most resilience built into their structure, uh, much more than anyone else. So they, there's a, we, we have a lot to learn, I think, from the Mormons, uh, yeah. from their sense of community, and just their, their very... Um, shrewd when it comes to coordinating uh, efforts and their resources and their organizational structure are second to none. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, obviously have very big, important disagreements with the Mormons, but you cannot (laughs) knock, knock their systems. They are, they're doing a pretty good job. And you can certainly share a foxhole with them. They're very nice people. I can tell you from experience. Yes. Oh yeah. I think generally um, what we have to, when I talk to people about this concept of intentional community, the, 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 the place to start is to overcome the bystander effect. 
the idea that sometimes this is formulated theologically, you know, in, which you know, theologically is legitimate to say that God is in charge and he works all things for the best through providence. But at the same time, you do have to respect, you know, respect secondary causality. You, you, there, there were very unlikely, though it could happen, very unlikely to be a deus ex machina sort of moment in store for us. I think we have to think uh, in practical terms and it has to be, when we think in those practical terms, we have to think of us. Nobody's gonna come bail us out. The Republican party isn't gonna bail us out. Uh, existing church structures aren't gonna bail us out. We have to do this stuff ourselves. And uh, a big part of that is preparing for, you know, things I, I think are already quite bad in most respects. You know, a lot of the United States, uh, you know, drug abuse, social breakdown, um, increasingly hostile politics, it's already pretty bad. And I think it's only gonna get worse, especially if we have a major economic uh, crash in store. So we have to get over the bystander effect and, and think, you know, of these intentional communities, not just to, as a way to build a better life, but in a very practical sense of like, we need to get together to build resilience. Yeah. Um, and so while things are relatively good, I think we need we should be scrambling right now to to do this uh, while, while the weather is relatively fair. Yeah. Well, very sobering, but very rings very true. Thank you so much, Roger, for coming on and sharing your insights. I have a feeling that people will probably want more. <laughs> so maybe we could have another conversation and, you know, I've dig into some other details. Well, this was a great uh, conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. I'd be happy to join you again in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much.